Pastor John. <laughs> He's quite a bit older. He, he has, well, had the opportunity to, to hang out with Jesus, to watch Jesus, to love Jesus. He, he saw Jesus taken up from him. And he experienced the church being birthed. Just a few days later when the Holy Spirit came upon and descended. And the church was born. Whoa, there's a lot of things that happened over the next 40 or 50 or 60 years. But John has weathered the storms. He still loves Jesus, and he still loves the church. Uh, Try to just imagine that. You've heard this introduction a few times, maybe in different words, but imagine that the, well, the experience that he had with Jesus is still fresh, and that all he wants... It's the church to know Jesus and to walk with Jesus. After 60 years, he's also been part of the church. He has seen the church's issues and the problems and the scenarios. And he loves the church. This is who's writing the letter. Yet, as we look at this letter, It seems like over and over and over again, he says almost the same thing. There's five chapters here. We're in chapter four this week. But he seems to, well, keep drilling down. It almost feels like he saw something creeping into the church. It almost feels like like maybe there was something off in the church, or he just wanted to make his mark. He he just really wanted more than anything, well, before he left, before he left this planet to make sure the church understood how important Jesus' words were. Today, John talks about false teachers and loving others again. I, I would ask you, Please, please don't dismiss what God's word has to say today just because John has said it a few times before. And before John, it was Jesus. So let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We recognize, Father, that you are God. You're sovereign. You're in charge. You alone, God, have authority over everything and everyone. That alone, it's just hard to understand, Father. But we ask you, dear God, that you would open our eyes to you today. We, we would ask, Father, that, that you would not only convict us, but encourage us. 
we would ask God that our faith would grow. In spite of all the circumstances and situations that seem to be bombarding our world today. Lord, it's been over three weeks since Russia has invaded Ukraine. We're still getting reports of the warfare, of the deaths, of the families who are separated of the kids who are suffering. Our heart is broken, God. We ask that you would bring peace to this region. We pray that you would do an amazing work. We know, Father, there are hundreds of thousands of God-fearers in that country. We know that there are churches that love you and are trying to care for the injured, the discouraged, the depressed, and the wounded. God, would you give supernatural strength to these folks as they try to figure out what every day brings. We're going to have an opportunity later on today, and maybe some have already given, Father, to, to give financially, that, that our district, our denomination, Converge, will be able to reach out and to strengthen the church and the people and the neighborhoods. We thank you for the opportunity for us to do that. But God, we also know that as we pray, prayer does something. And we ask you, God, that you would work and you would strengthen. Lord, we heard another tragedy this week. And I guess, if we're honest, we hear tragedies almost every day. But God, there were uh, (laughs) some college students that were tragically killed. We pray for the University of Southwest. To be honest, God, I don't know much about them. But I do know it's a Christian university. I know they desire to glorify you. I pray for the family of the 13-year-old. I pray for all the scenarios and situations there, God, because none of it really makes sense. God, would you provide peace and perspective in spite of this tragedy? Lord, in this time frame, in this calendar month, as Brendan already mentioned, it's it's Lent. It's a time, God, that at least traditionally we we stop so that we can focus. Some give up in order to be able to understand how wonderful and gracious and loving our God is. Sometimes we are distracted, God. Sometimes really good things distract us. And so during this time, we have encouraged our flock 
to be able to prepare for, I guess, what we call Holy Week. A, a time, God, where, where we focus on your unbelievable love. <laughs> your love in washing disciples' feet. Maybe more than that, a betrayer's feet. Your love of being falsely accused and whipped and tormented and then nailed to a cross. Your love that reigned as you were resurrected, giving us hope for today and for the future. God, may we use this season to be able to prepare ourselves so that we might understand who you are. Lord, there's so many other churches in our area, so many other churches that are faithfully teaching your word. And we pray for some of them right now. We pray for redemption. And we pray for Northbridge. And we pray for Lifebridge. God, we pray for those flocks and for those teachers and that your word would go out and that there would be, they would be salt and light in our world, this hurting world. Lord, we know that one of our dear friends, Marilyn Bell, had surgery this week. We are so grateful in how well she came through the surgery. She gives you honor and glory for that, God, but, but there's still some things not right. She's back in the hospital now. We pray for wisdom for doctors, and we pray for comfort and peace for Marilyn. We know she loves you, God. We do. We're so grateful that she is part of our fellowship and pray that you would walk with her exceptionally close during these days. Father, we pray for all of our teachers and our kids who are downstairs. And for those that work with kids and students all throughout the week. And for all the teachers and studies that happen, well, just about every day here. Lord, I just even wanted to thank you for the Apple Tree Homeschool Ministry. They've been using our building and, and they've been encouraging kids. And I pray, dear God, even as they just had a play, that you would be with that organization, helping them, encouraging them, strengthening them as they educate, I guess, this next generation in a way, God, that, that will honor you in their curriculum. Father, at the same time, we have so many kids and families who are part of our school districts. We have teachers who know you and love you and are conflicted every day on what to say and how to say it. Lord, I pray for them. We pray, dear God, that, that your people would infiltrate and that we would be salt and light in all these areas. God, we're going to open up your word now. 
we would ask that you would teach us more than anything. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to start off, if you would, you can turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Normally, we don't take a whole chapter, but we're going to dig in today. We're going to try that, okay? So if you had any plans afterwards, I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) Just kidding, all right? Good job. Um, We're going to start at 1 John chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow in the screens behind us. Uh, But we're going to have some folks uh, read for us and you can follow along, like I said, in your Bibles or on the screen. First John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over these people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people belong to this world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint, and the world listens to them. But we belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. This is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in the world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. 
and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. We're going to jump right in. Look back at verse 1. I'm going to read again through verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, don't believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people belong to this world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint, and the world listens to them. But we belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. This is how we know. If someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. The apostle starts off and says, dear friends, our world is filled with false prophets and teachers. You need to discern if the teachers have the spirit of God living in them. Well, back probably about a hundred years ago, It might be even a little easier to do. But right now, with media, with TV, with the opportunity, computers, you have the opportunity to listen to speakers or teachers really all over the world. And sometimes even in your searches, the folks that come up are the most popular. And always, you need to at least question a little bit the most popular. Not that that's always a bad thing, but we need to be able to discern who are good teachers and teach truth and what teachers aren't. John has already mentioned that the Spirit of God lives in true believers. When the Spirit takes resident in every person who comes to faith, there's evidence. Now, let me just remind you, before Acts, before the Spirit was available to every believer, the Spirit of God, especially in the Old Testament um, portion of Scripture, was given for certain tasks and certain time periods. Well, that all changed at the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was unleashed and given to every person who comes to faith. Well, how do we discern false teachers from true teachers? 
There's a couple ways, at least John says. True teachers will always have right theology about Jesus. One needs to acknowledge that Jesus Christ came in a real body. And if you take that and just, that is probably the only scripture you've read. So that seems a little odd. Like all I have to do is really understand that, that Jesus came in a body. Well, there is that existence prior to becoming the God-man or in the flesh. Secondly, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And thirdly, that he became man. In other words, the Messiah Jesus came in the flesh. Many of you, you hear that and say, well, okay, that doesn't seem to be too controversial. But one of the things you're going to find out is it's real easy to find out a good teacher from a false teacher by just asking them about Jesus. That's it. Later in verse 14 in this text, uh, John says this, we testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. He is man. He came to save us from our sins. It's all about Jesus. And as you read through the scriptures and even some of John's gospel, which again, he was very clear in some of these areas. Well, Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was our sacrifice. Jesus was our representative. So we might be able to see who God is and what God looks like. You know, I was picking up my grandkids from their youth group last Wednesday. And I guess if you have a pastor as a grandfather, um, you're excited that they go to a youth group. You're excited that they have great games. But as soon as we get in the car, right before we got these shamrock shakes, it's the only way they'll let me talk to them. As I asked them the question, how was the message? What did you talk about? I am telling you, this is their answer. It was about Jesus. (laughs) At that moment, I had a uh, decision. Guys, you know, okay, this is awesome. I am so glad it's about Jesus. I am. Let's go a little deeper. But in some ways, I am really excited that Youth pastors or teachers or whatever talk about Jesus. True teachers belong to God. They have the Holy Spirit. And realistically, they have some wins. We also, as believers, have the Spirit and have conquered them. That's the world and false prophets and antichrists. God's Spirit is living in you. And it is greater than he who is in the world. In the world, the world's philosophies, the world's allurement, the world's self-focus. Is the world strong? Is the world powerful? Absolutely. But our God is infinitely stronger. Are false prophets wise? Yes. But our God is infinitely wiser. Is Satan strong and great? Yes. But our God is infinitely greater. And this one, who is infinitely stronger and wiser and greater, is living in you, if you're a believer. 
if I could wrap this part up, I would say this. Genuine Christians will avoid false teachers and recognize that true teachers possess the Spirit of God and preach Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. Let's look at verse 7. We'll read through verse 11. Dear friends, you know, it's hard. I, I'm just going to stop right there. It, it's hard. Over and over and over, you'll hear, dear children, beloved, loved ones. John really cared for this church. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves a child of God and knows God but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only or his unique son into this world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice. Oh, we're going to come back to this word, sacrifice, to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us so much, that much, we surely ought to love one another. This is the third major time that John hammers this nail of loving one another, especially the brothers and sisters in your church. It was shared in 1 John 2, 7. It was shared in 1 John 3, 11. But what John is just trying to say is loving others shows that you are part of God's family. Period. It's the one earmark. Anyone who doesn't love really doesn't know God, doesn't have a relationship with God because God is love and a relationship with him changes you from the inside out, does. The ability to sacrificially love others only comes from God. And when I say that, let me just say one other thing. Sometimes when you hear that Christians are to love one another, it almost feels like, well, maybe I have seen those that don't know Jesus, love others quite well. I I am not saying that the not yet redeemed can't love or don't love. In fact, sadly, some of these folks love better than sometimes Christians do. Never forget that all persons are made in the image of God and that all persons, in spite of their depravity and sinfulness, will at times give reflections of the one whose image they bear. I am saying that a sustained, growing, sacrificial love for others will only come from staying connected to the vine. God showed us love by sending Jesus so we could have life. Jesus himself, while on this planet, modeled for us what the Spirit-empowered, sacrificial love looks like for us. In our culture, love is too often understood in selfish and sexual terms. 
lives. The Word of God paints a completely different picture. One that exasperates us if we are trying to live out these principles apart from God. Apart from being led by the Spirit. The words sacrificial and supernatural help us understand love just a little bit better. And ultimately, God's love is best illustrated in the death of Jesus on the cross as he takes on himself the sins of the world. It is God's nature to love, to give, to be sacrificial. God is love. But, uh, try to catch this, God is love does not equal love is God. Any more than grass is green means green is grass. Love does not define God. God defines love. And here's what he uses as an illustration. God made the first move. He showed us what love is, and he sent Jesus to be our propitiation. Oh, a few weeks back, we spent a long time on that word, propitiation. In most of your translations, it's um, sacrifice, all right? Uh, the atonement. But, but a word here, I think, is worthy to look at. Propitiation means to turn away the wrath of God by means of an offering. Now, We're talking about a loving God. We are talking about God that sacrificially gives. It feels a bit weird talking about a loving God and that he needs a sacrifice to appease his wrath. It's a little confusing. But I think it's confusing mostly because we don't get his holiness. Because God loves us, and because our sin, any sin, and all of us have sinned, separates us from God, he sent his son as a sacrifice so that we might be redeemed. We might be reconnected. We might have our sins forgiven. Propitiation teaches us that God personally hates sin. Propitiation teaches us that God is holy and sin is serious. Propitiation teaches us the truth that Christ's death satisfied the Father and was a substitute for you and me. Propitiation teaches us the greatness of God's love in which he provided the offering to turn his wrath away. Now, here's what's so amazing. And I'm not even sure if you've thought of this recently. But he did not love us because we loved him. He loved us while we were rebellious, while we were sinful, while we were enemies of the cross. He did what was needed in order to reconcile enemies. Do you get that? 
not all respond to his love. We know that. And you can't make anybody love somebody. You can't. But God's love is so overwhelming when we understand it. When we literally see how far away we are from God. How our sin is separated from God. Why would God do this? Why would he love us like this? So he ends up this section and says, So dear friends, God loved us that much. We should love one another. Now I'm telling you, if, if you don't highlight verse 12 or draw a box around it or draw arrows to it, um, maybe you will after today. Verse 12 is unbelievable. And I think this is the little piece that maybe sticks out a little differently than all the rest of the letter when he asks us to love one another. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. No one has seen God, but when we sacrificially love others, people get a taste of who God is, of what God does, and how God acts. Now, when we first read that no one has ever seen God, it's really how John opened up his prologue in the gospel. And I'm, I'm just going to go over there. In John chapter 1, starting at verse 18, John writes this. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God, talking about Jesus, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Now, really, I think John is thinking a little bit of Exodus 33. When Moses' request was, God, I want to see your glorious presence. I want to be able to see you. And in Exodus 33, God responds. And he says, Moses, Moses, uh, you're not going to be allowed to look directly at me, at my face, to gaze at my glorious presence. God told them that no man could look directly at God's face and live. But John understood that. John knew that. And he said this. We know that Jesus revealed who God was. You may not be able to see his face. But what John was saying is, I've seen Jesus. Jesus himself said over and over and over again that, that he and the Father were one, that he reflected his dad well. So since, and this should absolutely blow you away, since God's love is no longer visible in the presence of the incarnate Christ here on earth. God's plan 
is to manifest his love through his people. God's plan is the church. Let that sink in. God's plan is for you and for me to walk with Jesus. And wherever we go, love people like Jesus loves people. Paul describes a healthy church in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11. This is what Paul writes. Now, these are gifts Christ gave the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. Now, listen to this last part. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son so that... We will be mature in the Lord. And then gives us that definition. Measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. What Paul says here, which helps us understand, is that God gives the church, which is the body of Christ, which is representing Jesus, not only here, but wherever they go, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. These folks are to equip God's people to serve. These folks are to build up or strengthen the body. And that's done mostly through the teaching of God's word. This strengthening should continue until the church is mature until it represents God well, until it measures up to the full and complete standard of Christ. You see, the evidence of a strong body or church is that the flock is growing in the unity of faith. They're believing the right things, and they're growing in the knowledge of Jesus which results in the church living more like Jesus. The goal for the church then, for our church, for any church, is to be like Jesus. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We understand that Paul writes this almost exactly same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But can you just think about it? What a privilege for us to represent God. What a responsibility. Not that we try really hard, but that we stay connected, allowing the Spirit to produce fruit in us from the inside out so that we're able to sacrificially love even those who are enemies of the cross. Now let me wrap up our section if I can. Look at verse 16. I'm going to read verses 16, 17, and 18. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. 
God is love. And all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. And we, or as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. Again, encouraging if you mark your Bibles, underline this part. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. We can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, well, it's for the fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We know and believe God loves us and lives in all those he loves. As we live in God, as we stay connected with God... Our love grows more perfect. A better way to say it would be complete or mature. It matures. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more time we walk with Jesus, we begin to mirror him wherever we go. Privilege, responsibility. But John brings up again Judgment Day. It's a third time in this short letter. And he says, I just want you to know, again, a maturing love results in confidence, not fear. That when you see Jesus, it's going to be a wonderful, glorious day. And we can be confident because we are connected with God, living like Jesus lived. And then a side note, if, if you're afraid, if you're afraid to see Jesus, if, if when judgment comes, you're a little, um, um, oh, whoa, I, I don't know, it, it doesn't sound that exciting. Maybe it is. You haven't experienced God's love, which, rev, which releases us to love, to live right, to represent God well, to sacrificially love those here in this church and those everywhere we go. I think what John is saying is that if you're afraid, your relationship is weak. You're not spending time with the Lord. You're not drawing your strength from our God. And no, it's all about that. John is say, saying it every different way. He's saying it's going to be glorious to go see Jesus if we walk with Jesus. If you don't walk with Jesus, uh, you're not going to be so confident. And then in verse 19, we love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but it hates his fellow believer, that person's a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we can't see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. We love. We love because he loved us. We we can't say we love God, someone we can't see, and then hate our brothers and sisters who we can't see. So, those who love 
God must love others. You know, I think it means something like this. And this is what's so cool because sometimes we hear a command, sometimes we hear an exhortation, and, and our own kind of self goes, hey, oh, I, I, you tell me what to do. I, I don't like being told what to do. But I think this is the context of how John is sharing his heart, his last plea, his, his desire for the church. He says, live out day by day who you are. As those who are born of God. As those who know God. As those who have experienced the love of God, which has transformed you, changed you, empowered you. We are simply experiencing and enjoying who we are in Christ when we love one another. And if for some reason that supernatural ability isn't there, it means you don't know God or you're not walking with God. You know, folks, I... In this series, I've not given you lists of what it means to love one another. But I know this, is that I, as I walk with the Lord, as I listen to the Spirit, as I open up His Word, and He guides and directs me, there are times when God says, Rick, you are not loving. You are holding a grudge. You are not forgiving. You are not gracing. You are not representing me well. And you have choices, and I have choices at that time. I can try really hard or I can ask God to change my heart. Because I can tell you this, the only way you can love sacrificially, giving up your own life, your own pleasures, your own time, your own finances, Love always involves sacrifice. And if I am not walking with God, I personally rebel. You know, John (laughs) kept repeating because it's important. I still think the conversation on the way home and around the dinner tables and and throughout the week is, God, what are you asking me to sacrifice? How do you want me to love supernaturally the way that only you can help me do? In the home, 
in the church, in the office, in the neighborhood. Imagine this. Anybody walking into this body and being loved by every one of us the way Jesus loved. It would be the greatest place on the planet. Let's pray. Father, you gave John these words. And to us, it it feels at times, well, can't he talk about something else? How, How come he keeps focusing on the sacrificial love? And then, God, we read about how you loved us when we were enemies, how, how we did not want your love or your help. God, your love breaks our heart. Your love empowers us to love others in the same way. Because we just can't normally wash those people's feet who betray us. And we just can't normally forgive people who've abused and beat and torn us to shreds. We can't. We can only love like you love if you change us. Would you do that, God? Would you Help us mirror you better today and for all the days you give us breath. We pray this in your son's name.